0: Good morning. It's good to see all of you again back this morning on time. I had text Brother Dwight last evening just to make sure that service starts at 930. And he replied and confirmed that. And then he said, well, by the way, you're the preacher, and so if I don't get here till 10, I'll still be on time. So I replied back to him, and I said, well... It's interesting that you can be late and still be on time, but that must be only in, in Minnesota. And so, I'm glad to be here. <clears throat> Last week at our revivals, the this kind of goes back to the timing thing. Um, the 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 brother that shared in our revival week somewhere along the line, and I don't know if it was it was a message on the church. He made this comment that in the life of the church, it's only the pastor or the preacher that suffers the consequences for not being on church on time. You know, everybody else, if you're late, well, someone will fill in. But somehow, if the pastor's late, uh, I guess everybody dismisses early or something. And... And I guess I say that to share this, I I would encourage you to be prompt on time, be here. Um, my bishop brother for a number of years used to say that if you're, if, okay, so the service starts at 9.30, and if you're here at 9.30, you're late. That was his philosophy. Um, if you want to be on time, then be here at 925 or something like that. Plan to be here at 925 and then maybe you'll get here on time. Appreciated the Sunday school lesson. (coughs) Gideon's experience there with the fleeces and we, at least here in the adult class, we talked about is it right, is it wrong in seeking for signs. And I appreciate where we came out um, I think it's I think it's a good thing when we can seek signs in a sincere way, and we are intentional in some of those seekings. I remember ten years ago, <clears throat> I was considering taking on a business. Currently, what I'm doing, automotive repair business, taking on a re- a business that was basically retired in a community that didn't maybe have a lot of people you need you need lots of cars to make an automotive repair business be successful and um, the closest town to our place to my garage is probably ten miles and even that town is not very big and they have a repair garage there um, the next bigger town is about twenty miles and so I don't have a large pool of cars and so I, I the, the bishop brother that was retiring the thing, I asked him. I said, "Is there really enough business in the community to feed a family?" He says, "Well, he thinks so." And um, I was seeking some advice from some of the brothers in the church, and it just seemed like the the all the lights were kind of in quotes green that I should. But I wasn't quite satisfied yet. And I don't know if I it was if I was a little like Gideon and I'm like God. Are you really sure that this is what you want me to do? And I started looking for stop signs. And I don't know if that was Gideon's situation this morning or not. God, I mean, are you, come on, let's see some stop signs. And so I and I and I specifically asked some specific questions in relation to some stop, light, stop signs to some people, and it just seemed like the stop signs were eliminated. And uh, one of the questions that i that I asked God is god what what if I jump into this thing and two, three years down the road, it just looks like there 's not enough, and, and God just kept on saying, "Tom, just trust me, just trust me, and so I like Abraham, I just kind of proceeded forth based on the confidence that I thought I had and Yeah, most businesses, when you start out, you kind of expect two or three years of famine before you really kind of get things established and that kind of thing. I was expecting that, and it was a little bit that way. Well, the Lord Lord has blessed in ways beyond my imagination. Without advertising, without doing anything like that, the vehicle started coming. It was by word of mouth, and we've had plenty of work. Nine years later, which happened to be this past summer, I don't know what God had up his sleeve, but it seemed like he turned the spigot off. We, we kind of, about first of July or so, work kind of dried up, didn't have much work scheduled, you know, most, of course I tell people my business is a little bit like ER work. You, you, the ER doctors can't schedule accidents and that kind of thing and whatever. Um, but we didn't have much scheduled work. We, it, our lot was pretty much empty. We had caught up in most of our work and, and I, I was, I was getting a little bit desperate. God, what are you up to? What are you trying to teach me? Are you, and it was kind of my policy with God that if God wants to bring the vehicles, then he brings the vehicles. If he wants to drive my business or the business, he can do that. And then that'll be my sign that he wants me to do something else. But it just seemed like God was a little bit silent and and not much was there. Wednesdays are usually my... I advertise open business Monday and Tuesday and Thursday and Friday. Wednesday is not a day that my customers expect to see me. I could be there. I could not be there, but don't come on Wednesdays expecting to see me. This particular week... We pretty much were caught up, and I, I I had a little time with God Tuesday evening. And I said, God, I don't know what you're trying to do with me or what you're trying to tell me, but I said, we don't have work, and you told me to trust you. And this was nine years ago, nine and a half years ago. You told me you would trust, and you would provide. And I said, we're, we're done. There's nothing here. Next morning, I felt like I needed to go to work. This is Wednesday, usually my day off. I told my son, son, let's go to work. I don't know what the Lord has for us to do today, but let's go to work. Let's get it done. So we went to work. Before I was there, there was a customer waiting for me that usually, okay, or usually I'm not there on Wednesdays, but he was, there was a customer waiting for me there. Before that customer left, two more customers showed up and they had projects that took some time to do and two weeks later I was still working on some of the work that God brought me that Wednesday and I've been busy ever since and so yes it's good to have the confirmation that God is in your in your life and when doubts come we can go to the bank with those doubts and say God you said thus and thus and God will come through And I just want to share that for your all's encouragement. That, um, yeah, I think it's good at times to put the fleece out like Gideon did. And be sincere about it. And let God be God. And let God be sovereign. And let him have his way. And he will always, always, always see you through. We don't understand all the details from day to day. But he will always see you through. And by the way... I believe July or August was the best month that I had for the last nine years as far as profitability goes. And so God, God is good. And, and I'm convinced this morning that God wants me in Wanga, West Virginia, uh, doing his work there. That's not part of the message, by the way. Well, I want to greet you in the name of Jesus this morning. The Lord of the church. The one that has called us out of the world of darkness into his marvelous light. In order to proclaim his praises to a perishing world. That's the purpose of the church. That's the purpose of you and I here in Blooming Prairie. Is to be a light to the dark world around you. And to gather souls in. And so this morning, I'd like to preach a message on the blessings of a unified church. The story has been told about a congregation that discussed the need to expand their current facilities. The one plan that seemed the best plan required the removal of an old tree. The elder deacon of the congregation was dead set against... This removal and stated his reasons clearly and boldly. And by the way, I think there's too many scenarios here in the story that kind of fit your congregation. This was not made in relation to your congregation. We have an elderly brother back here. You've had a recent addition to your congregation with the, of course, it's been what 10 years or 15 years the, the the addition back here. But anyway, this is not in relation to your congregation here. The congregation finally took a vote, and the vote carried to cut the tree down. A date was set to carry out his this task. The old deacon was the first one there. When asked about why he was there, when he so strongly opposed, his reply was something like this. I was opposed, am still opposed. But the voice of the congregation was to cut the tree down, and I'm here to get the job done. I want the privilege to cut it down. The blessings of a unified congregation. What does it take to have a unified congregation? We sing that song, and I'm assuming you have it, you, you, the, the first and second graders or even the kindergarten. When we all pull together, you all know that song, when we all pull together, how happy we'll be. And then we, when we all work together, and when we all sing together, and when we all pray together... When we all pray together, how happy we'll be. You know what? That We kind of think that's kind of a little child song, but that song is filled with powerful concepts when it comes to a unified congregation. It's powerful. Is unity within your congregation or within this congregation a high priority? Or are you okay with each man doing what is right in his own eyes? The word unity, according to Webster's, is the quality of not being multiple, oneness. You have 75 people here this morning, according to the board back there. I didn't count them. Are we in unity this morning? We have 75 people. What does it make to say that we're one? And that's the idea of unity. Unity. The quality of not being multiple. What does God say about unity and how is it achieved? Amos 3-3 says, can two walk together except they be agreed? And I don't know what your answer is that, to that, but if you and I decide that, yeah, taking a walk would be a good idea, let's, uh, let's, let's take a walk tomorrow morning at seven o'clock and, uh, It'll be great, and so I leave my apartment at seven, and you leave your house at seven, and we go on a half-hour walk. Are we? Are we in unity? Are, does that satisfy the question of being unified? We're both going to walk. We we agreed at seven o'clock. Are we in unity? Not hardly. We could be miles apart. Yeah, we. Both walked at 7, but miles apart. So let's say we're going to meet here at church, the church parking lot, at 7 o'clock, and we're going to go on a walk. And so we meet here at 7 o'clock, we go out here to the road, I go one direction, you go the other, or are we walking in unity? The answer is no. I mean, there's a few things that we did agree on, but we obviously, when we got out to the road, we couldn't agree in which direction to go. And so no, we're no longer in, in, in unity. So let's say we, we we satisfy the next question. We decide that we're going to uh, go to the right out here, which is towards blooming. And uh, so we start walking along and you get tired and you sit down in the grass beside the road and I keep on. Are we walking in unity? Again, the answer is no. If we're going to walk in unity, I need to sit down with you and do everything together with you. Then we are in unity. Can two walk together except they be agreed? We need to agree with every step of the way in order to be in unity. Turneth me to the book of Ephesians. A <clears throat> large part of the message will be taken from the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter five. Jumping in at verse twenty-two. And if you know your, if you read the first couple verses here, or the first couple words of this passage of scripture, you're probably asking the question, oh Tom, this is, this is supposed to be a, 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 a unified church message, and here we are talking about wives submitting to your husbands. And we just talked about Amos 3-3, can two walk together? These are some passages of scripture that a lot of times are used in marriage messages. But I want, us to, I want us to think about something as we read these next few verses here, chapter 5, 22, of the emphasis of the church that we find in these this passage of Scripture. Verse 22, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hateth his own flesh, nor nourisheth it and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. But we are members of his body, and of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself. And the wife see that she reverence her husband. I I didn't count it, but how many times did Paul make reference to the church in this passage of Scripture? There's a lot of parallels that I see. Between a husband and wife relationship and unity within the church that needs to be active. And so for the first little bit, I have a few questions as it relates to marriage. For those of us that are married and those of you that aren't married, you might have some opinions on some of these questions. What keeps us married? What keeps you married? We live in a society where separation and divorce and that kind of thing is at a fairly high ratio. What what's the difference between what we have in the conservative Mennonite churches versus what's happening in society? Why is it that we have marriages that are stay intact? Is it because we have discovered some of the right chemistries or something and we just, you know, is that what keeps us married? Is it finding the, the perfect one? Somehow God led me to the perfect one and so we'll just live happily ever after? Did you find someone that fit me? You know, we have this... Uh, I. I a number of years ago, a few years ago, there was an elderly lady in our community that had a son and, and, and his wife from another state. They were in to visit her. She was on her deathbed. And and I had the opportunity to meet with this this young couple, or this couple, they weren't so young, they were older than me, um, and and their mother that was ill. And they were talking about their marriage relationship. They had He was in jail for a number of years and so, but it was after his jail experience, the Lord got a hold of him and changed, he turned his life around and he met this lady and they got married and he said, you know, we have such a wonderful marriage. I don't remember exactly how many years they were married, three or five years. It wasn't just overly long. And he says, we haven't had one fight yet. I'm like, hmm, okay. I let him talk a little bit. He said, we just agree on just everything that there is. I said, okay. I haven't seen him now for about five years or so. I wonder how their marriage is now. So I I come away from that discussion thinking, okay, so either they still got their heads in the clouds and reality hasn't hit yet, or I, I don't know. Is that the way you find your marriage to be? Those of you that are married, you know you just never had a fight in your life and you agree on everything and it's just peaches and cream and roses. The reality is that every human relationship is going to run into a snag sooner or later. There's enough humanness in us that... Well, like the other evening, who's on the throne? And a few of you have had made mention of that. When self gets on that throne is when problems start happening in relationships. I know in my, in my marriage relationship, we have a good relationship, but it hasn't been without its snags without its struggles. And I, and I would venture to say that every married couple here this morning would say the same thing. There was things that you had to work through. There's things that you had to sit down and talk about. And someone somewhere along the line had to do some giving and taking. And sometimes it's on both sides. So what does it take to resolve these snags? Well, according to what we find here, it's an unconditional commitment to unity or oneness by love and respect. For a husband and wife relationship to stay intact, the husband, according to what Paul is saying here, the husband needs to love the wife unconditionally. It doesn't matter her response. It doesn't matter whether she still likes me. It doesn't matter whether she still respects me. I'm going to love her anyway and do what's right and do what's best for her anyway. Unconditional love. And the wife on the other side, the word reverence there in the last verse is more directly related to respect. And so that when we have this unconditional respect, I don't really care whether he doesn't bring flowers home or not. I don't really care if he doesn't do the honeydew list job or not. I'm still going to respect him. And so when you have this unconditional respect and unconditional love taking place, you have a marriage that's going to stay intact. And we're committed to this unity and this oneness. It's a surrender to self, trying to see it from the other's perspective. And so when we put this into the context of Ephesians 5 now, I have, I have to ask the question, did Paul intend for this passage of scripture to be an exor- to be a recipe for a good marriage or was there something else that he had in mind? And the reason I bring that up is because we can go back to chapter 1, in which we'll do that. We can go back to chapter 1 and look at the, the context of this whole book that Paul writes to the, to the Ephesians, the church at Ephesus, which we have there in verse 1. Uh, he's not writing it to just to Pastor Dwight. We're writing it to the Blooming Prairie Mennonite Church. It's everyone that's included. It's not just to a specific person. And then we have uh, some words. Following verse 1 there in chapter 1. That uses the term we and us and together. And things like that. I thought I had him noted here. um, Starting in verse 15 more so. He talks about um, his love and what he's been hearing of them. Unto the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation of the knowledge of him. The eyes of your standing be enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. So we're not talking about just one person. We're talking about the saints. It's the congregation. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty powers. We read some of these power words the other night. Maybe it's more in chapter 2, where we have some of these us and we words. Uh, yeah, here we are. Um, verse 3, among whom also we all had our conversation time passed. It's not just one person, it's we. Serve sin, the lust of the flesh. Verse 4, but God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us. Even when we were dead in sins have quickened us together with Christ. And we can go on and on and on. And we can pick out some of these we, us phrases. It's more than just one person that he has in mind. We can go to chapter four now. Let's jump to chapter four. Verses 1 to 16, we won't necessarily read it verbatim, just kind of pull out a few things here, but he's talking about walking in unity. Verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, there is one body, one spirit, even you are called, one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, <clears throat> one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. One, 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 one. Chapter 2, we saw the we. Now we're looking at the one. That we have one goal, one calling, one mission statement. And then verses 7 to 16, he talks about the different gifts that we have, that God gives to the church. And no one person has all the gifts. One person or a couple people have the gift of prophecy and the other has a gift of pastoring and teaching and evangelism and we all have different gifts the different abilities that God gives us but yet we still have one goal verses 17 to 20 20 well, the end of the chapter we have the old life versus the new life. We talked about then again it brings up this thing of who is sitting on the throne. Is it the old man or is it the new man? Is it the, the old selfish nature, is it the new selfless nature that is that is being played out in your life? Chapter five Verse 2, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us. And here again we have some of these us words, and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as for a sweet smelling favor. Verse 18, and be not drunk with wine wherein his access, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in your heart unto the Lord, giving thanks always for all these things unto God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourself one to another in the fear of god and then we go back into our opening text of wives submit yourselves submitting do we like that word is that is that something that that um, we enjoy doing now we we expect our wives to submit but when we get to church we men we uh, t- kind of think that we don't need to submit I suggest to you that paul <clears throat> there in verses twenty two to to the end of the chapter of, of chapter five, he brings the marriage the marriage recipe of what keeps you married into the life of the church and he and 's bringing a point out and i 'd like for us to think about that just a little. I want to be careful that I'm not saying that we need to be married to the congregation, to the church. There's some principles that I think that for in order for unity to happen, we need to get real, 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 real close to that concept. Real close. I understand that a number of you have moved here from other congregations, and that's fine, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you weren't married To that other congregation with divorce not an option. And so I, like I said, I want to stop short of having this being married to the congregation and divorce is not an option, but yet I, I'm concerned that we have too much, too much of this I'll try it, see how I like it, and if I don't like it, I'll go somewhere else attitude. I don't know if that rings any bells or not. <clears throat> it seems in back east we we maybe deal with that. One of the blessings of having a congregation out here in the middle of nowhere, and you don't have, in quotes, a lot of other competition around, maybe you don't deal with that here. Um, if someone wants to leave this congregation, that's fine, but you're going to have to pack your bags and go. Uh, that's And that's a blessing. That That is that is a blessing. Unity is not achieved by determining who is right, but rather what is right and then submitting to that goal, or submitting to that level. And that's everybody, not just the newest baptismal class that need to do all the submitting. Sometimes the bishop needs to do a little submitting. And... We'll talk about that a little bit later. Just like marriages within the congregation, there must be a commitment to unification through dialogue. How many of our marriages would last if when we got married we held divorce as an option if things don't go how I like, and that is one of the reasons why in society marriages aren't lasting. They get married, and they like, you know, well, if it doesn't work out, well, that's fine, we'll just get a divorce and... Find someone else, and hopefully that'll be better than this one if that if we get married with that in the back of, on the back burner, it's not going to last because as soon as you get into a snag, as soon as you get into a situation where you don't agree, guess what you're bailing out and go somewhere else. There's no commitment there. How many of us join church with divorce as an option if things don't go the way I like. A few years ago I had the opportunity to talk to a young man that was changing church um, membership and I he was going from a more a little more conservative setting to a, a little more liberal setting and I shared some concerns in his step and uh, he told me this he said well it's a better fit for me I didn't think of it soon enough and after we hung up I was thinking about that statement like hmm where does he find that in scriptures it's a better fit for me where do we find in the scriptures that the church needs to submit to me I don't find it and if you can find it I'd like to know because maybe I could use that verse too Let's face it, the real reason we have struggles in church is because I'm not willing to surrender to my own right. And this goes back to that diagram that we had on the board the other night about who is sitting on the throne. We need to ask the question, who is king of our lives? The reason we have dysfunctional homes is because there is are a lack of commitment to unity. And I suggest to us this morning that the reason we have dysfunctional congregations is because there's a lack of commitment to unity. Yes, at times we do need to sit down and talk about things. And in that discussion, we can seem to have about three or four or five polarizing discussions and, and thoughts and viewpoints and that kind of thing. But where are you when the vote is taken? And this is, the, this is the path that we're going to go. Where Where's your attitude then? And I've said before that unity is more determined by what is said after the vote than while you're discussing before you vote. And so it's okay to share your viewpoint and opinion before the vote, but what's after the vote, how you perceive and your attitude after the vote is going to determine the level of unity moving forward. We're studying the book of Jud- Judges currently in your Sunday school lesson, and I, don't, I didn't look ahead in the booklet to see if we'll get there. But in Judges 17, verse 6, it says this, In those days there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Then the very last verse of the book of Judges, Judges 21, verse 25, it says this, In those days there was no king in Israel, every man did that which right was right in his own eyes. Twice in the book of Judges. We basically have the same statement. And if you read the passages of Scripture between Judges 17, verse 6, and Judges 21, verse 25, what do you find? Anybody know? A A lot of chaos. A lot of chaos. And every man did what was right in his own eyes. What would happen to your congregation here if every man did what was right in his own eyes? The bishop decided, you know what? You all do what's right in your own eyes. I'm just going to stand back and watch. What do you think would happen? The church would be disorganized. Extremely disorganized. Uh, shows up, maybe you have two people here because they thought it was right to meet at 9.30. 10 o'clock rolls around, you have maybe five more people show up because they thought that 10 o'clock was the right time to show up for church. And at 11 o'clock, the same thing happens. You have chaos because everybody was doing what was right in his own eyes. The song leader gets up here. He thinks it's right to sing a certain song. Another brother says, You know what? I think another song would be better. And so we have two songs going at the same time. Sound like harmonious music? I don't think so. I think we're getting the point. We have to have structure. Someone somewhere along the line needs to decide that we're going to start church at 9.30. And if it's a congregational decision, that's okay. But that had to be decided somewhere. And the song leader... Um, somewhere, so we can't. Someone's got to be a leader. There's got to be a standard. There's got to be some kind of order, or you have nothing but chaos. Unity within the congregation doesn't come through a tug of war experience. Those of you that've been to Bible school, uh, at least in the guys—I don't know if the girls do tug of war or not. Do the girls do tug of war in the back in the dorm or whatever? You don't know. Huh? Um, but the guys have a tug of war thing. That's kinda of fun. Um, you get a group of guys on one side, you get the same number of guys on the other side of this rope, and you kinda of go back and forth and you know, you have this back and forth, whatever, and finally one side gets the maybe more grip on the floor or a little bit more muscle or somewhere along the line or a little more momentum or whatever, and they kinda of sway the whole thing their way. Unity in the church is not a tug-of-war experience. It's not by who can overpower who, but rather by submitting one's opinion for the sake of unity within the brotherhood. We need to understand that God, the creator of the church, intends for diversity to be active within a given congregation. God is the God of diversity and variety. We can see that. No two human beings are the same. And they tell me that there's no two snowflakes that are the same. And I I don't have the time nor the expertise to try to figure if that if it's true or not. But they tell me that there's no two snowflakes the same. Well, how many snowflakes does it take to get a pile of fun? Now, I, I made mention the other day about uh, enjoying the snow, and I had some negative feedback. I so said, you enjoy the snow. Um, yeah, I, I do. I mean, it's, it's kind of fun for a while at least, uh, till April rolls around, you time, you're ready for the snow to disappear. I suppose you don't have any hills around here to go sledding and so it's no fun, huh? Um, our hills are pretty steep and you can get pretty good speed and it's, yeah, it's, it's fun. But how much, how many snowflakes, diverse snowflakes does it take to get to a pile of fun? It takes a number of them. If it's just one snowflake, you, It's a little hard to make a snowball out of one snowflake. It doesn't work unless it's really big. Well, God is a God of diversity. And our thumbprints are the same way. They tell me that there's no two thumbprints the same. We are uniquely different. We are different in personalities. We have different perspectives. The question I'd like to ask is, are we going to allow these differences to drive us apart? Are we going to allow these differences to drive us apart? Or a blessing to each other? God doesn't make us different. So that we are totally incompatible. And then turn around and his book and says, get along. God doesn't do things that way. And so why do we have so much trouble getting along? According to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians three. 3 And I think maybe a brother the other evening had read that in his devotions, maybe. Uh, But First Corinthians three three. Turn there. He's talking about um, this thing of sectarianism in my Bible. That's the heading: sectarianism. And sectarianism is when you have this polarizing effect within a group of people. And he says this: um, For ye are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal? and Walk as men. For while I, for while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are ye not carnal? So, in other words, we can have opinions, we can have perspectives, we can have thoughts. And they may be ever so right. But let's be careful that we don't have such a high opinion of our own opinion that it causes problems and divisions. Especially once we start getting behind certain people... um, and, and this is really, I think, kind of what Paul is talking about. If Brother Dwight says, well, I think we ought to do it this way. And Brother Curtis says, well, I think we ought to do it this way. And then brothers in the congregation say, well, I agree with Dwight. And another brother say, I do agree with Curtis. And guess what you got? You have something what they call, uh, a stalemate like you have down in the White House at Congress when, when the two houses can't get together on things and things come to a stalemate and you, and you don't move forward nowhere. carnal, carnality. When people just seemingly can't get along, it isn't personality clashes, but rather it's carnality clashes. And that's what we find here in, in, in Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians 3.3. 3. It's, it's carnal. If you can't get along, it's carnal. When it seems like we can't agree, maybe we need to ask the question, am I part of the problem? Am I part of the problem? And that goes back to kind of the the result of evaluating who is sitting on the throne. Am I part of the problem? Just looking at some of the differences or some of the gifts that God gives in the church. Uh, Back to Ephesians chapter 4 again. And this list that he has here, Ephesians 4, jumping in at verse... Well, no. We read some of the earlier verses. Let's jump in at verse 11. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. And why did he give these gifts out in their diversities? And I would suggest that... Well, there's what, five or seven gifts here that probably there's at least seven people within a given congregation that's going to excel in in these seven different gifts to a greater or lesser degree. For what purpose is that? Verse 12, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry. And by the way, this work of the ministry is not for the ordained. It's for the body of Christ. It's for the Blooming Prairie Mennonite Church it's as a whole. The church should have a mission statement. Your purpose for being here is, is what's in focus. The work of the ministry of the church for the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come in the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the sleight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby we wait. Sorry, I lost my place. Whereby they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working and the measure of every part, maketh increase in the body unto the edifying itself in love. There's, there's two things here. There's two gifts that I'd like for us to think about. And, and a lot of times church problems come because of these two gifts. And that has to do with the gift of the prophet and the gift of the pastor. It seems like the gift of the prophet and, and the gift of the pastor are kind of on the opposite ends of the stick as far as how they perceive things. And a lot of church problems have been because of these two gifts and god did not put these two gifts in the given congregation to divide the congregation he put these two gifts in the congregation to edify the congregation to build it up to to make it a solid piece the the gift of the prophet has the you know he can connect the dots of of what's happening in the past and he says well if we keep going in this in this path in 25 years, this is where we're going to be. That's the gift of a prophet. And he can, he can, he can look in the future and he says, well, if we don't make a change, this is where we're heading. That's, that's the value of the gift. Now, do you, do you see that as a valuable thing? In, in business life, you have a, you have a business trajectory. The trajectory, or however you want to call it, and you have a goal in the future. But if you're, if the dots and and the line doesn't quite head towards your goal, you say, "Well, we're going to have to do something different. There's going to have to be a change, or we're not going to get to our goal." Well, the life of the church is the same way. And the gift of the prophet is 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 has that gift. He can see the goal, and he says, "Well, if we keep doing what we're doing, we're not going to get there." We've got to change. And oftentimes the prophet says, we've got to change. We've got to change now. We've got to change today. Tomorrow's too late. And with that kind of an attitude, it can cause some problems. Because the truth supersedes relationships. Now, let's go to the pastor a little bit. The pastor says, well, I really could care less about the trajectory. Yeah, we've got this goal, and we're heading that direction. I mean, we might be off course a little, but that's okay. But we got this brother or sister that needs a second chance, or or let's let's give him some more room, or because the relationship is more important than the truth. And so, where do you think a congregation is going to go like that if everybody in the congregation is like that? And we have two examples we won 't turn there i 'll just throw them out for you in the book of Revelation in the seven churches the the church at Ephesus was like the church of the prophets. It was a group of prophets and you read that setting and you challenge me if i 'm not correct, but they lost their first love they they maintained a level of truth they were effective in in keeping things on target but jesus says my my Accusation towards you, or my fault for you, is you lost love. And then we have the church at Pergamum, uh, Revelation two twelve and seventeen, where I would say this church probably fits the church of the prophet or the pastors because they were allowing some things in the church that shouldn't even be mentioned. You do a little study on the on the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And and it it is appalling to me that within matter of well, it probably was less than fifty years of the formation of the early church till we have the church at Ephesus or the Pergamum there in Revelation, and it is appalling to what they were allowing and sanctifying in the church. It puts a lot of our same sex relationships, whatever in some of our current churches today to shame they all we love each other we whatever and that's where they were at so let's be careful there is a ditch on both sides of the road so let's be careful stay in the center We could go to First Corinthians 12. I'm going to skip some stuff out of my notes here. We could go to First Corinthians 12:1 to 31, where Paul has a long list of of things that focuses on on membership, members versus the body. And I don't think we'll go there, but I had intended to to read through that passage of scripture and have the ladies count. The members and have the men count the bodies and when we get done, compare uh, which one is referred the most often. But you, you, that's your homework, okay? I don't have time this morning for that. You go home and you read that and you compare it. The, the body, the word body is used more often than the word members or member. And so going by that is, is the focus more on the member, the individual or the body as a whole? Just pulling a little bit out of that, you, know, you talk about members. Your your thumb, is that more important than the rest of your body? You know, if you cut your thumb off and that's out here on the floor, it could it could kind of keep keep growing, but the rest of your body would die. I mean, it's more important. Well, we know the truth of that one, and that's basically what Paul is saying there, First Corinthians twelve. the The whole body is more important than individual members. Romans 12, 3 to 8, again, we have very similar thoughts. When each member focuses on being useful to the body, then unity is happening because the work of the body is more important than the agenda of each member. And so here at church, when you come to church, the agenda of the church is more important than my personal agenda. Very quickly, the blessings of unity in the church. Number one, unity proves God's authority. Not Paul's, not Paulus's, not Cephas. And in that list where we have, we had some people saying, well, we're of Jesus Christ. Oh, wow, I'd like to be part of that church too. But we have people today that say, well, you know, we're following Jesus Christ. Well, good for you. Regardless of who our leaders are, there is the kingdom of God that we are here, laboring for and for His glory. And we're not here because of Brother Dwight. We're not here because of Brother Curtis. We're not here because of Brother Delvin. We're not here. Yeah, we're glad that we have leaders among us. And we need leaders. But this is not Brother Dwight's church. Are you offended that Brother Dwight? Are you, are you offended if I say this is not Dwight's church? Yeah, this is not Dwight's church. This is the church of Jesus Christ. And we all need to be... We all need to be pulling to that end. This is the church of Jesus Christ. It proves God's authority. When we're unified, it proves God's authority. Secondly, unity proves that we love God. We can go to 1st John 4, 7 to 8 and some other passages there where, where it says we, we need to love God and hate our, and that word hate has the idea of love less, love secondary. God needs to be primary. Third thing, unity convinces the world that God sent His Son Jesus that they might believe. We can go to the Jesus High Priestly Prayer in John 17. And I am, I am challenged at that prayer. And I invite you to look at the last five, six verses of that prayer, the High Priestly Prayer, and internalize it for yourself. Because it seems as Jesus breathing Emphasis was unity in those that follow after the apostles steps. And that includes us today. Unity that they may be one as I am one. And it goes on and on. But yet the world may know when there's unity within the congregation, it proves that we love God. And that Jesus sent was sent to this world. The fourth blessing is unity empowers the church to move forward. We've talked about this somewhat uh, there again in John 17. Um, It empowers the church that they would do the things that I would do. The fifth blessing is unity allows the church to become a haven for those that are, in quotes, lacking. In Acts 4, verses 32 to 35, in the early church, we when the Holy Spirit got hold of the people and they sold their possessions and they brought it and put it at the deacon's feet and, uh, and they said, here, find people within the congregation, find people, whatever it is, and bless it, no strings attached, just use it. would that be nice, Curtis? If, if, you know, the people of the congregation would have such a heart for the, for the needs in the congregation that they would sell their extra tractor or whatever and just bring the proceeds and put it at your feet and say, brother, Kirk, just, just find something to bless you with. Wouldn't that be nice? You wouldn't have to have pass the offering basket for brotherhood aid. But that's how they did it. And Barnabas, uh, verses 36 to the end of the chapter talks about Barnabas had some, had some land. And we know Barnabas as the son of consolation. That's the, that's the name of, the meaning of the name of Barnabas, son of consolation. And he sold land and brought it at the apostles feet, laid it there and said, use it. Bless somebody with it. No strings attached. Well, unity. Well, wrapping some things up. Have you been a blessing to this congregation? As a member, are you focused on the body? Maybe you feel you are just the little toe on the left foot, but what are you doing to serve the little finger on the right hand? Maybe you feel you are the right arm. Let me see, this is my right arm. Maybe you feel you're the right arm, and I'm that's kind of pun intended. You know, sometimes we think we're the right person, we're the right arm. You listen to me. Are you grateful for what the left leg does for you? You see, we're 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 all one. Can you like the old deacon supporting and getting behind congregational decisions even though you are diametrically opposed to the idea? You see, removing the tree was not a salvation issue. And it and it. and I shake my head sometimes. Some of the struggles that I hear about in conservative Mennonite churches or Anabaptist churches and what they fall over. I, I mean, they, they struggle over. It's not salvation issues. Yeah, there are some times we need to draw a line in the sand. I understand that. That it's not a thus saith the Lord issue. But let's be careful. Are you, you see, removing the tree was not a salvation issue, just a personal petty issue. Maybe he had some nostalgic memories back when he was six years old, climbing this big oak tree outside of church after church service. And you say, you know what, well, that was kind of fun. And I want my great-grandchildren to experience the same thing, And so let's let's leave the tree be. I don't know what his reasons were. But anyway, sometimes we get hung up on nostalgic issues. And he suffered it for the sake of peace and unity. May God be glorified in this congregation as you submit to each other as you work, pull, sing, and pray together. May God give you grace to this end and how happy you'll be. Those of you that can be, you can. Let's kneel for prayer.